are in private law practice in London. And so in trying to come up with a topic today that we thought would be interesting to you, but also something that we could speak to with at least a modicum of authority, um, we decided to turn to the subject of corruption. Now, just sort of by way of anecdote, um, the majority of the international arbitrations that we have handled in the past two to three years have involved allegations of corruption on one side or the other. And so we address these allegations and the legal consequences of any finding of corruption are really on a daily basis. But most practitioners, and we would include ourselves within that, um, tend to rely on principles and maxims without investigating the theoretical foundations. And unfortunately, the same is true for most tribunals. And on closer investigation, some of these foundations for these maxims and principles appear to be unstable. And so we're very grateful for the opportunity to come here today and talk through some of these issues with you in this setting and to canvas your views. We're still at a very early stage of the research, so unfortunately there will be more questions than answers, but hopefully we can flip the question sec section at the end and you can give us some answers to the questions that we raise. So just to set the scene, it's fair to say that until the late 1990s, uh, corruption or in international terms was really widely tolerated and even perhaps encouraged. Um, in fact, you'd often find large multinational companies booking bribes in their accounts as a business expense for the purposes of tax deductions. It was viewed just as a cost of doing business. Now, fast forward 20 years, and it's a very different story. In the foreword to the UN Convention Against Corruption, Kofi Annan quite rightly said that corruption is an insidious plague which has a wide range of corrosive effects on society. It undermines democracy and the rule of law. It leads to violations of human rights. It distorts markets. It erodes the quality of life. And it allows organised crime, terrorism and other threats to human society to flourish. However, the fact that corruption is now widely condemned does not mean that it has been eradicated. And the recent Transparency International Corruption, Corruption Perceptions Index gets straight to the point. No country gets close to a perfect score in Corruption Perceptions Index 2016. And to provide just sort of one example, there's the recent Lava Jato scandal in Brazil, which embroiled Petrobras, one of the biggest oil companies in the world, a cartel of the country's largest construction companies and all of the major political parties, and it eventually brought down a government. So our inquiry today is what does public international law have to say about corruption? And I'll go back to where we started, where the question arises most acutely for us is the field of international investment treaty arbitration. Now, these tribunals' jurisdiction is derived from treaties, and they are mandated to apply those treaties and other norms of international law. Um, and as noted, it's rare for allegations of corruption not to arise these days in these arbitrations. There's no doubt that corruption is hugely relevant in, in other areas of public international law too, not least current efforts to try to, to, try to get grand corruption, uh, turn it into a, an internationally prosecutable crime before the ICC, but we'll try to keep our focus on international arbitration. 
So by way of very brief outline, we'll first examine the international, uh, the existing international anti-corruption anti norms. We'll then turn to do um, a case study on how recent investment treaty tribunals have addressed allegations of corruption. We'll then discuss some of the implications of what these tribunals have been doing for public international law. And finally, we'll just raise a few broader systemic concerns about what these tribunals have been doing. So I'll run through this very quickly, and in fact, I haven't started my timer. Um, <laughs> but in terms of what the existing landscape looks like on the international level for combating corruption, the starting point is actually probably domestic legislation. Um, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States dates back to the 1970s. It criminalises the supply side of bribing foreign officials, and it has a quite notorious extraterritorial effect. Other states have since followed suit. We now have the UK Bribery Act. We have legislation in France as well. And in fact, France recently exercised a form of universal jurisdiction over the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea on charges of corruption and money laundering. In the 1990s, United States companies started feeling a little bit aggrieved that they were the only companies that were subjected to this prohibition on corruption. And so the US started to lobby for a level playing field on the international level, and the result was the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention of 1997. As of May of this year, only 43 states have actually become parties to this convention. Uh, and essentially, it requires states to criminalise at the national level bribery of foreign public officials. It also puts measures in place to try to ensure that states' parties actually enforce those laws. And it sets up some international cooperation mechanisms for extradition and for mutual assistance too. Um, in 2003, the UN Convention Against Corruption was adopted by the UN General Assembly. It entered into force in 2005. It follows much the same structure as the OECD Convention in the sense that it does not create an international crime of corruption or bribery. What it does instead is, for some um, crimes, it mandates states' parties to adopt national laws criminalising behaviour, again, such as the bribery of foreign public officials. In other instances, it actually doesn't mandate states to do anything, but it suggests that perhaps states might like to also criminalise the receipt of bribes by public officials. Um, one interesting point on the UN Convention is that during negotiations, there were debates over whether or not the notion of corruption itself should be defined in the treaty. It ultimately was not, um, and it was basically determined that it was neither feasible nor desirable to come up with an international definition of corruption. So as I mentioned, what it does instead is it basically sets up, I think, around 12 different offences, all of which might fall under the broad corruption umbrella. There are various regional instruments that largely follow the same structure, um, and there is a plethora of soft law instruments, most notably the recommendations and guidance of the OECD working group. So what conclusions can we draw from all of this? Without a doubt, there are international efforts to combat corruption, and it is a subject of great concern to the international community. 
There can be equally little doubt, however, that we are a long way from recognising the international crime of corruption. As I just mentioned, we can't even have an international definition of corruption. And instead, it's been left to the states to adopt their own national criminal laws and their own national enforcement mechanisms, albeit with some cooperation on the international level. But there's nothing in any of these treaties to suggest um, that a, a finding of corruption should have any sort of mandatory or imperative effect when an investor is alleged to have engaged in corruption. Nothing to suggest that they might be prevented from vindicating otherwise enforceable rights that they enjoy under treaties. Um, and with that, I will hand over to Kira to start walking through what tribunals have been doing in the interim. So as Sam says, allegations of corruption are routinely raised in disputes between investors and states. These type of disputes are typically brought under bilateral investment treaties, but they can also occasionally come up in the context of agreements with state-owned entities. A particular feature of investment treaty arbitration brought under BITs is the fact that these disputes are governed by public international law or general rules of international law. This is an important factor because, in contrast, commercial arbitrations are usually governed by domestic law, and domestic law will most likely prohibit corruption as a matter of national legislation, and it will also likely have rules that dictate the impact of a finding of corruption on any other civil rules or contractual agreements. So how has corruption been addressed by international investment tribunals? The corruption cases are a subset of a broader category of cases which re relate to a plea of illegality. The legal consequences of corruption in investment treaty arbitration have been the subject of extensive commentary, and despite this, it's still very difficult to distill any concrete principles uh, or any, to identify any hard and fast rules as to how it will be treated. But to summarize, a finding of corruption if it's established, and that's uh, another issue that we'll, we'll come to, it will have one of three possible consequences. First, it might deprive the, the tribunal of jurisdiction. Second, it may render the claim inadmissible. And third, it may act as a defense to the claim on the merits. So just looking a little bit more closely at three, these three headings, with regard to jurisdiction, this typically comes up where the corruption or the corrupt payments took place during the making of or the acquisition of the investment and the bilateral investment treaty defines investments that are protected under the treaty as those that are made in accordance with the law of the host state. So in those situations, treaties, tribunals may decline jurisdiction on the basis that the corrupt investment is not protected by the treaty. And the classic example is the case of Metal Tech versus Uzbekistan. There, the Uzbek-Israeli BIT explicitly defined investments as any kind of asset implemented in accordance with the laws and regulations of the contracting party. So once it was shown to the tribunal's satisfaction that the claimant had paid bribes through payments to third-party advisors in that case, once they had shown that that was a violation of Uzbek criminal law, as a matter of treaty interpretation, the investment wasn't protected by the under the definition of an investment. The key factor in that case was that the treaty contained a, a referred back to domestic law. So it was the treaty, sorry, the tribunal simply had to look at the, the national rules. 
we're not going to focus in this presentation on, on this line of cases because it focuses in particular on, on it's a question of treaty interpretation and of domestic criminal law. There's another category of cases that fall into this um, that we're also not going to look at today, which are those cases that arise under contract. And where you have a contract, you also will have a governing law that refers back to domestic rules of, of uh, anti-corruption and bribery. And so we're not going to focus uh, to discuss those any further. The second type of consequence is where the tribunal might decide that by virtue of the corrupt conduct that the claim is not admissible. And the classic case is Kim versus Uzbekistan, which is a recent case on the 8th of March of 2017. Uh, the corrupt activity in that case was raised under two headings. Uh, to the extent that it was a breach again of, of Uzbek law, that was a question of jurisdiction. But the tribunal also considered that it went to the admissibility of the claim. And then finally, it might be raised in the merits. And typically, that's where the corrupt conduct took place, not during the making or acquisition of the investment, but actually during the operation of the investment. Uh, so, as I said, we're going to focus on those cases where the tribunal didn't have the option of referring back to a domestic definition of corruption. And so we're going to look at what they did in those cases. And actually, in the first case, they did have the option of referring back to domestic law, but they nevertheless looked to international law. So we're going to start our sort of whistle-stop tour of, um, of relevant case law um, by looking at World Duty Free and Kenya, which is an award that was issued in 2006. And it's an important case because it has really formed the bedrock of later tribunals' efforts to rely on international public policy to knock out claims brought by allegedly corrupt investors. So in this case, there was really no doubt about the facts at all. From the claimant's own evidence, the tribunal was able to conclude that the claimant had basically made a personal donation of $2 million to the former president of the Republic of Kenya, part of which was actually left in a brown briefcase by the wall of his former residence. Um, so really no doubt that this was a bribe. And it was a bribe that was made in, in order to obtain concession contracts to construct and to operate duty-free stores at airports in Kenya. Um, later, the Kenyan government took a number of actions against the claimant's investment. Um, and the claimant filed a contractual claim with ICSID under the contract's dispute resolution clause, arguing that Kenya had expropriated its property and essentially destroyed all of its rights under the contract. In response, Kenya argued that the contract had been procured by a bribe, that the payment of a bribe is criminal, and that the claimant's claims should not be heard as a result. Um, now, the contract's governing law clause is confusingly referred to both English law and Kenyan law. However, luckily for the tribunal, both English law and Kenyan law in this case came to the same conclusion. And that conclusion was that the claimant was not entitled to maintain any of its pleaded claims, um, basically on the grounds of illegality, ex terpi causa non orita actio. I'm so sorry, that is obviously a real horrible way to say that, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, and Kenya had validly avoided the contract under both English and Kenyan law. Strangely, though, that was actually the alternative and the secondary basis for the tribunal's decision that the claimant could not maintain its contract claims. 
Its first basis for coming to this conclusion was international public policy. Now, the tribunal began by referring to two concepts of international public policy. The, one, the first one is one that we are all familiar with, and it's the concept of public policy or ordre public that is rooted in national legal systems and that national courts will apply as grounds for refusing the recognition or enforcement of foreign judgments and awards. So far, so good. However, the tribunal then said that there is another use of the term international public policy, or that the term is sometimes used with another meaning, signifying an international consensus as to universal standards and accepted norms of conduct that must be applied in all fora. It has been proposed to cover that concept in referring to transnational public policy or truly international public policy. Um, now, with regard to this second concept, uh, the tribunal stressed that it had to be extremely cautious and that it must carefully check the objective existence of a particular transnational public policy rule. So the tribunal proceeded to perform this careful check and it noted that uh, bribery was sanctioned in the criminal law of most, if not all, countries that a number of conventions, international conventions, had been concluded as part of an international effort to combat corruption, that the UN General Assembly had issued a declaration against corruption. It pointed to one decision of the Paris Code d'Appel that referred to bribery as contrary to the ethics of international business. And it then referred to a number of other arbitral awards in which it said that the tribunals had also relied upon international public policy in order to knock out jurisdiction. Um, I just want to talk about one of those um, arbitral awards because it's also often cited as a sort of foundation for current um, approaches to corruption in international arbitration. And it is ICC case number 1110 of 1963. Now, similarly to World Duty Free, in that case, the tribunal was faced with, it was actually faced with an agreement to bribe. So it was an agreement between a company and a very well-connected Argentine who had influential connections with the Peron administration and who basically said, if you pay me one million pounds, I will obtain these contracts for you. I'm going to keep 200,000 pounds and I'm going to give 800,000 pounds to my contacts in the Peron government. That was the contract that they were trying to enforce in this arbitration. And actually, neither party took exception to the tribunal's jurisdiction to decide the claims. So the tribunal, which was a sole arbitrator, Judge Lagergren, uh, actually examined his jurisdiction sua sponte. Um, he first examined the question from the perspective of French law, which was the law of the seat. And he found that French law basically had a public policy rule that said he couldn't hear the case. He then turned to the law of Argentina, which was the law governing the contract, same conclusion, but again, not content to rely on this governing domestic law, he turned to a general principle of law recognised by civilised nations that contracts which seriously violate bonus mores or international public policy are invalid or at least unenforceable. And he concluded that basically contracts that concern bribery um, or persons that enter into such contracts 
must realise that they have forfeited any right to ask for assistance of the machinery of justice, national courts or arbitral tribunals, in settling their disputes. And he relied on precisely one case from a national court in coming to that conclusion. Now, Lagergren's decision essentially informed the rest of the case law that the World Duty Free Tribunal relied upon. And the World Duty Free Tribunal likewise concluded um, that bribery is contrary to the international public policy of most, if not all, states, or to use another formula to transnational public policy, claims based on contracts of, of corruption or on contracts obtained by corruption cannot be upheld by this arbitral tribunal. Tara. So what we saw after World Duty Free was a number of cases, relatively limited number of cases, which also sought to rely on this international public policy prohibiting corruption, but it didn't uh, proceed to perform the same careful check that the World Duty Free Tribunal undertook, and it, the subsequent cases have all relied on World Duty Free as, exist, as proof of the existence of this public policy. So we'll just run briefly through three other cases. The first is Nico Resources versus Bangladesh and two state-owned entities, which were Bapex and Petrobangla. And the situation in this Nico Resources case was that the claimant had entered into a joint venture agreement with one of the state-owned entities in 2004. And in 2006, it entered into a gas purchase and sale agreement with the other state-owned entity. What happened in the interim was that Nico Resources had purchased a Land Rover for the Bangladesh Minister for Energy and Minerals and had invited him on an all-expenses tour of Calgary in Canada. A couple of years later, the gift of the car became public. The, the car had to be returned. The minister resigned and Nico Resources was convicted of corruption in Canada. So the existence of the corruption was uh, without any doubt. In the interim, disputes arose under the two contracts and Nico Resources uh, initiated arbitration. The respondents objected to the jurisdiction of the tribunal on a number of different grounds, but one of them was an argument that the claims were inadmissible because Nico Resources, having bribed a minister, had violated the principle of good faith and international public policy and therefore should be prevented from advancing its claim. In the event of that case, the tribunal found that there was actually no causal link between the corruption and the acquisition of the investment. But notwithstanding this lack of connection between corruption and, and the subsequent uh, agreements, it proceeded to investigate or to look at this concept of international public policy. And it's interesting for what it says. Um, it opens by saying, it is widely accepted that prohibition of bribery is of such importance in the international legal order that it forms part of what has been described as international or transnational public policy. Uh, it comes to this conclusion by saying that it had been referred to the holding in World Duty Free and the tribunal is not aware of any contrary position. No other position has been brought to its attention by the parties in the course of the proceedings and therefore the tribunal accepts without further development that the prohibition of bribery forms part of public policy. Uh, it's also interesting to look at what the tribunal said the legal consequences of, of a finding of corruption should be. Um, it found that an international public policy norm should override any general principles of party autonomy um, 
and that any contracts in conflict with this international public policy cannot be given effect to by the tribunal. Uh, however, it went one step further and it distinguished between contracts of corruption, which is the situation that Sam mentioned already, where the subject matter of the uh, contract was for illegal activity, and contracts that were obtained by corruption. And it, it distinguished this second category. And it said that in, for this second category, which are contracts obtained by corruption, uh, while it may lead to the annulment of the contract, such a consequence is not automatic. It's simply a relevant factor in the legal proceedings. And the reason for this was uh, it thought that it should remain within the power of the state to decide whether to rescind the contract or not, for the interesting reason that it held that the bribe, the taking of the bribe was not attributable, attributable to the state, and therefore the state itself was innocent of corruption and therefore shouldn't uh, be required to bear the, the harsh consequences of the invalidity of the agreement. Um, that is an interesting conclusion, and it really relied on some statements in World Duty Free to, to come to that conclusion, and because in World Duty Free, uh, the tribunal had held that the fact that the president had himself solicited the bribe, that action was not attributable to the state. The second case we're going to look at is a, the case of Vladislav Kim and others versus the Republic of Uzbekistan. And this case was uh, decided on the 8th of March of this year. And in that case, the claimants held majority interests in two cement plants in Uzbekistan. And after various domestic criminal proceedings launched against the two cement plants, the investors' shares were confiscated by the state and they initiated investor state arbitration. Again, in the bifurcated jurisdictional phase, Uzbekistan argued that those contracts, or sorry, those shares had been obtained through corruption. And it pointed to a number of red flags that Uzbekistan argued indicated that the claimants had paid bribes to a Miss Karimova, who was the former president's daughter, but who had periodically held uh, positions of public office. But critically for the outcome of the case, at the time she received these payments, and notwithstanding the fact that she was the president of the daughter, uh, the, <laughs> the daughter of the president, um, she uh, uh, did not hold public office at the time these payments were made. There was also a secondary issue about payments to a consultant. Um, and Uzbekistan's objection was twofold. First of all, it argued that it was prohibited by the Uzbek Criminal Code, uh, which prohibited giving of bribes to public officials. And this was a jurisdictional objection. So the tribunal rejected this argument by looking at the specific Uzbek provision, which required that the bribes be made to a public official and found that because neither of these individuals held public office, the uh, domestic crime was not met. It then moved to a second argument based on this international public policy. Um, and here, again, the tribunal simply accepted, by reference to world duty-free, that such an international public policy existed. However, it was required to look more closely at what the content of this public policy was. And it accepted that the um, public policy was uncodified in nature um, and that this was problematic because of the seriousness of the allegations and its consequence. 
So the tribunal was forced to uh, ask what the content of this concept was, and to do so, it referred to other international instruments addressing corruption that Sam has already discussed. And on the basis of these, it concluded that the international public policy against corruption relates only to government officials and doesn't extend to bribery in the private sector. Again, because the two individuals, Ms. Karamova and Mr. Bezakov, were not public officials at the time of the investment, the tribunal was satisfied that the public policy against corruption didn't apply in this case. Just in passing, Kim versus Uzbekistan is also a very important case in terms of the uh, consequence of, um, in terms of dealing with how corruption should be, uh, what impact it will have on the underlying contract. In previous cases, which had an, an all or nothing approach, as soon as corruption was established, the tribunal found it couldn't uh, give any effect to any aspect of the agreement. Kim versus Uzbekistan really reiterated that courts should adopt a proportionality or a balancing test that would balance the severity of the crime against the impact on the other parties. Um, and it's worth mentioning because there have been similar developments as a matter of English law, uh, the Supreme Court has also moved from a rule-based approach to arguments of illegality towards a balancing and a proportionality approach. The final case that I'll mention, and I'll, I'll just mention in passing because the award in this case has not been rendered. This is again Uzbekistan, a, a prominent respondent in these cases. And it's a case called Spentex versus Uzbekistan from the 27th of De December 2016. The award is, has not been published, but investment arbitration reporter um, disclosed the contents of the award, and, and I mention it for two reasons. <coughs> First is that it again accepts that there is an international public policy against corruption, but it appears to address it through the prism of unclean hands. So the argument being that the uh, claimant uh, who can't come to the tribunal with, with unclean hands. Um, and the second reason it's worth mentioning is that it appears that in that case, the tribunal actually attempted to define corruption as a matter of international public policy. So to give further content to the, def to the concept, and it defined it as any promise, offering, or giving to a foreign public official, directly or indirectly, any undue financial or other advantage, in order that the official act or refrain from acting in the exercise of his or her official duties for the purpose of obtaining business advantages. And this would fall under corruption as a matter of international public policy. So very briefly, what principles can we distill from these cases? First, arbitral tribunals have identified an international public policy prohibiting corruption that has concrete effects in the legal order, namely to deny jurisdiction, to render claims inadmissible, or to defeat claims on the merits. The normative content of this policy appears to be developing incrementally We've seen that it appears to be limited to corruption of public officials only. We've also seen that in order to define the content of this policy, tribunals will look to the existing international instruments on anti-bribery and corruption, and that's very important for reasons that we'll see later. And finally, as to the consequences of a violation of this policy, the tribunals appear to be split between an all-or-nothing approach uh, 
whereas where the corruption will serve as an absolute bar to the claim. Um, those cases are on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have moved towards a balancing and proportionality approach. So if we have a public policy that produces legal effects in the legal order, um, it also seems to have identifiable content, and it has many of the hallmark, hallmarks of a, a norm of public international law. Uh, the next question is, how does this norm fit within the conventional sources of international law as set out by Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice? And as you'll have gleaned from our discussion of these cases, after World Duty Free, there was very little engagement or analysis as to what public policy actually was. Tribunals just accept it as fact and refer back to the original award. But this question about sources is, is a, of critical importance. The theory of sources of law in public international law provides legitimacy to the governing law framework, and it is the basis for a tribunal to apply it to individual cases without being able to ground its decisions in a source of international law what authority does the arbitral tribunal have? So, as you'll well know, Article 38 of the statute sets out three main sources of international law, treaties, custom and general principles, and one subsidiary one, the judicial decisions and writings of publicists. So, as we've seen at this stage, we can't seem to identify this principle in treaty, as Sam has taken you through those, those treaties, um, for the same reason, given the difficulty articulating a concrete definition for corruption um, during these multilateral discussions which were, took place very recently, I think it's safe to say that this doesn't uh, meet the standard for custom. So what is left? Can we say that it's a general principle of law? Uh, I won't attempt to define general principles here, but um, you'll know that they are typically broader principles that go to issues of, of evidence, of procedure and of jurisdiction rather than specific rules. Uh, they are sometimes described as a, res a residual reservoir of legal rules that can fill the gaps where no applicable treaty provision or international rule of custom exists, but that we can discuss afterwards whether that is a, an accurate characteristic of general principles. So can we argue that this public policy is actually a species of good faith or of the principle of unclean hands? And there is some limited authority to this effect. First, we can refer to the investment treaty case of Phoenix versus Czech Republic. And in that case, when it was discussing the, the purpose of the system of investment treaty arbitration, it reiterated that investment treaty tribunals cannot protect investments that are made in violation of the laws of the host state or investments that are not made in good faith, for example, investments obtained through misrepresentations, concealment or corruption. Uh, the second illustration that it, uh, suggestion that it may be a general principle would come from the case that Sam discussed, which is the ICC case in 1963 by Judge Lagergren. And there, as you will have heard, he believed that there was a general principle of law recognized by civilized nations that by which contracts which seriously violate bonus mores or international public policy are invalid or cannot be enforceable. The, that statement was also echoed in some of the investment treaty cases, and one such case is Vena Hotels versus Egypt, 
Um, and in that case, the tribunal opined that corruption and bribery, if proven, could be an independent ground for dismissing the claim because on the basis that it was contrary to an international general principle. Um, but in that case, corruption wasn't made out on the facts. With regard to unclean hands, uh, in the NICO resources case that we mentioned earlier, this was the, the way that the uh, respondent had invoked corruption. It, it had said that it had maintained that the underlying agreements remained in force, but the claimant couldn't come to the tribunal for relief because it came with unclean hands. But in that case, uh, because it wasn't made out on the facts, the, the tribunal didn't investigate it any further. But suffice to say, not all of the cases that have applied international public policy have made any attempt to characterize it as a general principle of law. So can we say that this international public policy is something else? Can we say that it is a new source of international law, akin to public policy in the domestic realm? Uh, but the difficulty here is that source theory, um, its purpose is to set out clear rules about how states assume legal obligations. If an arbitral tribunal is relying on an external source of law to override a treaty right, it ought to be clear about the basis on which it is doing so and where it derives that authority from. And despite World Duty Free's careful check, it, there was no discussion at all about the source of this rule of public policy. And if we are to accept that this is somehow a new source of international law, and the broader question is also, is it a new source of general international law, or is it a source of law that is limited to investment law? But how do we define public policy more generally? Where, is it, where does this concept bring us? Should we uh, draw anal analogies with the private international law principle of public of um, international public policy? Should we derive, um, should we look to domestic public policy in order to be able to define what it is? It's simply not clear and there's no parameters or discussion on where it comes from and how it should develop in the future. The only mention that World GD Free made of this, uh, or the only attempt it made to define the concept of public policy as opposed to the specific policy on corruption was to say that there is it is a policy around which there is international consensus as to the universal standards and accepted norms of conduct that must be applied in all fora. But that is not very illustrative, and it also sounds very similar to custom. So I'll just close this section with um, a maxim that is often overused to describe public international law. Um, it was, it's a maxim that was once described as um, serving no useful legal proposition at all, but it's the oft-cited uh, words of Lord Burroughs in Richardson versus Mellish, which is, public policy is a very unruly horse, and once you get astride it, you never know where it will carry you. It will lead you far from the sound law. It is never argued at all, but when other points fail. Uh, and I'm just gonna pass you back to Sam to, for some general uh, broader thoughts about what implications this development of an international public policy has for general international law and bringing us back to our main point for the fight against corruption more generally. Yeah, so just to finish off with, with five um, relatively brief points and then we'll 
turn to the answer giving part of the session. Um, the first is really a practical point, um, and I hope that this came across as we were talking and it may not have done, but we absolutely do not dispute and there can't be any doubt that tribunals do have to do something when they're faced with allegations of corruption on the investor side. Um, for, if for no other reason than that to allow such claims to be brought without any form of check or um, sanction would further undermine the legitimacy of an investor state system that really is already in crisis. Um, the second is, um, and Kira has really sort of walked through this in a bit more detail, um, we really do need to be distilling what the tribunals are doing. Um, and one of the things that they seem to be doing is attaching hard consequences to what is really soft law on the international level. And short of putting somebody in prison in The Hague, there really is no harder consequence than depriving him or her of otherwise valid rights under a treaty. Um, and if that is what tribunals are doing, and this is the third point, is it legitimate? On the one hand, can we see this as a legitimate development of public international law norms? Um, and Baroness Higgins might see this as an authoritative pronouncement by a participant in the international legal system um, that is just as legitimate as a pronouncement by any other participant. Michael Reisman took completely the opposite view and he has referred to what tribunals are doing as basically a bootstrapping of soft, the softest international law. Um, he made the point that it ignores the rigour of an inquiry into custom and it also ignores the generally horizontal nature of public international law norms because what tribunals are essentially doing is uh, granting this public policy an imperative or mandatory force that we just don't see that often in the international legal sphere except when we're talking about use Kogans. Um, and Reisman actually concludes his article with a plea as a public international law lawyer um, uh, that the imprecise and subjective nature of international public policy gives public international law a bad name. Um, the fourth point, if they are developing public international law, are we really comfortable with investment treaty tribunals doing it? Um, there have been questions raised in other spheres about the capacity of um, often commercial lawyers, private individuals, to deal with public law concepts and to develop them on the international level. This has been raised perhaps most prominently in cases where human rights and environmental concerns have been raised. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that we have certainly come away from this, one answer that we can give is if they are developing public international law, and frankly, even if they aren't, then we definitely need to see some more rigour to the analysis that they apply in determining whether this international public policy exists and what its content is. And finally, and this is just to sort of bring us back to where we started, it's also interesting to look at this in the context of the broader fight against corruption. 
Um, we talked a little bit about the beginning, about the potential of having an international criminal law prohibition of grand corruption. But one thing that should also be looked at is the demand side of corruption, i.e. the officials that are soliciting and accepting bribes. Akira walked through this. Um, you know, the World Duty Free Tribunal has essentially absolved all states of liability for officials that accept bribes and have pushed all of the consequences onto the investor side. And they've done that without any sort of thorough analysis into the rules of attribution under international law and without examining whether we perhaps in fact might need a more bespoke set of attribution rules to really capture the full picture of corruption and where the fault lies on both sides. And with that, um, I will wrap up, but we'll just thank you again for having us today and we look forward to hearing your thoughts and, and questions.